0: Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer.
1: Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 62 for August 2016. I am your co-host the first, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host the second, Mike McGuinness. How are you doing, Mike?
2: Hey, we're back, live from MP3 or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. We mm. uh, we took last month off to run the mega podcast, which is uh, always a joy for those of us recording it and poor Mike, who then doesn't have to edit a podcast. Yeah,
2: I, I sort of got off easy, I guess, although not going to Kansas Fest and being able to participate myself was kind of a bummer, but I did get to hang out with uh, Mike Will Eagle. That was fun. Cool. How did that come about? Uh, well, apparently he has family out here that – and uh, I guess he didn't make the connection that, hey, I was out here, too, until this time he, uh, when he came out to visit. So he emailed me and came over and showed me his – his um, all the um, – everything that I've ever wanted to know about Apple One blueprints. I now know plus <laughs> than some.
1: Awesome. Yeah.
2: It was pretty cool, though. We had a good time.
1: Cool. Well, for any of our newer listeners, you want to explain who Mike Willegal is? Yeah, Mike Willegal
2: is the guy that does uh, Apple One. Does the Apple One replica pro, uh, project? He did uh, a small run of uh, Apple Two boards the, that were also replicas. Um, and I think he's the, the the brain behind the Brain Board, which is that um, plug-in card for your Apple Two that allows you to swap the ROMs out with whatever you'd like, including turning your Apple Two into an Apple One. Hmm, very cool. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, while you were off doing that, I was, of course, at Kansas Fest where you were uh, much missed, uh, hopefully next year. I got that, year. but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's lots to talk about uh, from Kansas Fest, and I'm sure we will delve into lots of that uh, during this episode Indeed. and in the coming couple of episodes, because of course I won't be able to shut up about it, uh, but uh, <laughs> one, of, uh, one of the folks who is now a regular attendee of Kansas Fest and made quite a splash this year is Mark Pilgrim. Say hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. that joke Mm. never gets old Uh, so uh welcome to the show um this was how many kansas fests have you been to now
0: uh this is my third in a row
1: third in a row cool so we're actually on the same schedule uh this is that was also my third in a row so uh you're probably best known in the Apple II community for doing a lot of software preservation these days. And uh, you made quite a splash uh, this year with uh, the announcement of Passport. So can you uh, talk to us about what Passport is?
0: Sure. Uh, Passport is a automated verification and um, preservation tool. It can verify and copy a lot of copy protected disks that would otherwise be uh, tedious to um, crack by hand. And uh, as I showed in my presentation, uh, it's now down to one keystroke. If it's the type of copy protection that Passport supports and knows how to strip, it will strip it all automatically.
1: Wow. Wow. So okay, so it, cra- it so it cracks the the disc and then also spits out a disc that is no longer protected. Is that correct? Correct. Cool. So yeah, for as a for preservationists, this is pretty amazing thing because it means you can get the full copy of the game, not what some teenage boy in 1986 thought should be the cop the complete copy of it, and also with no obnoxious crack screens or anything like that on the front of it. Uh, so that's that's pretty amazing. How long have you been working on that?
0: about six months. I think I started in about January of this year. So
2: now is this, um, the way, the way passport works, is it, is it like say a locksmith or something where it's, um, where it's like an RWTS and then a library of parameters that you feed into it or is, or is something else going on behind the scenes there?
0: No, not really. Uh, Passport is different from basically all the bit-copy programs from back in the day because they all were designed to make a bit-perfect copy with the protection intact. And so best case, you ended up with a physical floppy that would still pass its copy protection checks, either structural or at runtime or both. Uh, Passport works differently. It just has a certain amount of knowledge built in. There's zero parameters whatsoever. It's It either works or it doesn't. And when it works, what you end up with is a completely unprotected copy That you could easily, you know, image with ADT Pro, or it could actually be a disk image already that's, you know, on a floppy EMU or a CFFA 3000, one of these modern mass storage and and floppy emulator devices that you can hook up to real hardware. Uh, the, the, the the demo that I showed at Kansas Fest, uh, I actually have a CFFA 3000 in my Apple IIe. And I created in front of the audience, created a new DSK image, mounted it in slot five, disc one, and then cracked uh, a previously unpreserved disc that was in slot six uh, on a real floppy and then booted slot five to show that it actually had worked. That's, um, that's very impressive. Wow.
1: Yeah, it was quite a demo. We'll uh, we'll link to that talk in the show notes. Luckily, uh, the talks this year from KFEST were all archived uh, on video, so we'll be sure and link to that one. I think uh, Mark's was probably almost everybody's favorite. <laughs> it was extremely extremely entertaining, uh, culminating with uh, yeah, this live automatic crack of of a piece of software on stage. So uh, really really great. Um, so Mark, how many uh, pieces of software have you tested Passport on? Like, have you found stuff for how many? things, will it crack, and is there anything it won't crack, and so on.
0: I'm glad you asked. I I mentioned this briefly in the talk, but I have a, uh, a collection of about 3,000 E2D images, which are alleged, best case, they preserve everything on the disk, all the bits, and so you can run that in an emulator, uh, and it's like, it's a like a a digital bit copy like locksmith would make on a physical drive. Um, So the point is that I can automatedly test this verification and auto cracking tool that I wrote by writing a script that mounts these EDD images in a supporting emulator and then runs them in the virtual Apple II emulated environment, and then logs the results. So I did that, and I forget the exact percentages, but it was able to auto-crack about two-thirds of the copy-protected images that I had. Of course, the images that I have are skewed towards educational. Uh, There's a lot of mech in there, and they reused the same, uh, very similar copy protection for many years. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, sunburst and, uh, developmental learning materials and focus media and a, bun- a spinnaker and design wear. Uh, it passport does not do very well with the, you know, triple a games type, you know, Prince of Persia, Karatika, anything from Broderbund uh, generally, but, uh, it does. It does well with educational software, where the original developers basically outsourced the copy protection. Like it was put on at the disc duplication house at, at, as a service, and we're now um, removing it in in bulk. As a service. As a service. <laughs> right. um, so, so I. It, I mean, it depends on you know what when, when you say uh, just when you when you ask like. How successful is it? Uh, it's extremely successful at the things it knows about, and occasionally successful on things that I haven't tested, and fails very quickly on everything else.
1: <laughs> yeah, what was part of part of what I think is really interesting in this is for those of us who don't know much about you know the copy protection industry of back then is sort of learning how there were these these patterns, as you say, that a lot of companies just outsourced their copy protection, and so once you've and once you've detected it, then, then you can crack a lot of different things because uh, I think what's possibly unique about Passport in case people aren't sort of grokking what it's doing is that it's not, uh, it's not trying to copy the bits on the disk in the way that, you know, Copy Do Plus and Locksmith and so on had various increasingly clever ways to try and read data in the disk, read data from the disk that was uh, sort of at a higher level than the copy protection uh, existed at you've gone you've gone the other way like you're actually like looking at the code in the bootloaders and sort of like you say in your talk at Kansas Fest using the disks against themselves and using them to load their own code and so on um so it uh you know it's it's detecting what the actual copy protection algorithm is and then defeating it uh, which i think is really really
0: interesting yes that's exactly right and uh there there were cracking tools back in the day various demuffin tools for i forget exactly why they're called demuffining. it's a it's an interesting historical story a tangent but uh, there were you know super demuffin and advanced demuffin and these required that you would go capture the disk's own disk reading routines out of the bootloader and then feed them into one of these de-muffin, you know advanced demuffin uh, programs and it would spit out a copy of the disc that didn't work yet because, but, but all the data was in a standard format. Like, so the disc was copyable and then you had to go patch up the disc reading routines usually so that it would uh, be able to read itself now that it was in a standard format and you would need to go defeat any secondary runtime protections. uh, Now that you'd, you know, use this demuffin tool to, uh, to normalize all the structural protections. And Passport automates all of that, all, all, all steps of that, capturing the disk reading routines, doing the actual demuffining, and then uh, doing the, the post-demuffin patching, finding uh, secondary protections and fixing up the, the RWTS routines and all of that.
1: So, and for anyone who might be less technical in our audience, RWTS is read-write-track-sector, is that correct? And that's kind of a general little block of code that people write to read from the disk, is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's correct. Um, the, the really interesting thing, just looking at it from a modern perspective, the really interesting thing about Apple II floppy disks, uh, especially in the from the five-and-a-quarter floppy disk era, is that... Every disk is an island. There was, there was a standard format in the sense of DOS 3.3 and this DOS System Master Disk and you could initialize your own data disks. But that was just a convention, like it wasn't a requirement. Every single disk that you ever booted on an Apple II had to sort of bootstrap itself from the ground up. And so... All because there were no disk reading routines in ROM except just enough to get you started in this process. So every single disk, the first thing it has to do is load the routines that are on the disk itself that can read the rest of the disk. Which is just completely insane if you think about that from a modern perspective. Like, you know, you put in a CD and into your CD player. And, okay, I'm dating myself here, but but still, like you you put in a, a CD and and the first thing your CD player has to do is is run a program so that it can read the audio. Like that's insane. I mean, no no one, <laughs> <laughs> no one would design a yeah, system that way on purpose. Except-
1: yeah, I think that's. That, that, that's hard for, for people nowadays to grasp is that, yeah, if you were going to build a, a storage medium, of course, you would have some sort of standard format and then include in the computer or whatever the code necessary to read and write that standard format. And the Apple II just didn't do that. Everything, as you say, everything was just made up as they went along.
0: Right. And like other... 8-bit computers that were contemporaneous with the Apple II did have more standardized uh, format, smarter hardware, smarter floppy reading hardware that, you know, presented this, you know, abstraction layer. Hey, give me this this sector. And the drive would be like, okay, here it is. And, like, that was it. That was how you interacted with the disk. Um, so there, there were... So, of course, you know, publishers loved taking advantage of this because... It it provided uh, something that they wanted, which was uncopyable disks, because every Apple II, as I said, it came with, you know, the DOS 3.3 System Master, which had a copy program on it, which could copy unprotected disks. So if you want people to not do that, you have to be able to defeat at least that copy program, copy A. And then they got more and more involved after that. It was a whole cat and mouse game for about 10 years. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think uh, a good uh, a couple of good companions to your talk this year would be uh, Paul Hagstrom's talk on uh, uh, EDD, the the central disk duplicator uh, hardware, which helps preserve disks as well. Uh, and uh, also, I think uh, Mark, you gave a talk was it last year, the year before, on the E seven Bitstream, and that included yeah, that
0: was sort of last year.
1: Yeah, and that included sort of a summary of. Uh, the industry of copy protection. And the, again, the sort of cat and mouse history of, of, it on the Apple II. So we'll link to those in the show notes as well. Cause they're also both great watches. Going
2: back uh, for, for a minute. Uh, how far back actually do you go with, with the Apple II Mark? When was your first Apple II experience?
0: My first experience was, I'm trying to remember exactly. I think I was 11. So that would be 1983. And my father, who was a college professor at the time, bought an Apple II so that he could write a thesis on his sabbatical. And he got an Apple II as opposed to any other kind because that's what they had in our elementary school. I mean, granted, they had like two of them total, but apples were for education and everybody knew that. And so that was important to him. And so he that's what he got as opposed to anything else. And he did actually write a thesis. Um, and the first thing I said is, well, what can it do? And he said, it can do anything you want it to. And I was hooked.
2: <laughs> so did you just dive right into cracking software even back then?
0: No, no. I, no, I, I, all of that is, is, is quite modern. I I admired the people who were doing that because I just couldn't I couldn't even wrap my brain around it. Uh, and I had no access to, you know, uh, original software beyond the couple of programs that my parents had bought. And uh, I, I didn't spend a lot of time in the word processor until, you know, high school and whatnot. But, but I did for that, that first year, I think they got it in September. And uh, by November, I was asking for programming books for Christmas.
2: And uh, how long did you stick with the Apple II before you moved on to something else?
0: All through high school and into college. So I used the Apple II. Uh, I think we upgraded to an 80-column card at some point. Uh, I begged for a second disk drive and got it at some point. I begged for a real joystick. They would gotten me a Koala pad because they wanted me to draw on it. (laughs) <laughs> of course, try try you know try playing Wavy Navy on a Koala Pad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, actually, now I kind of want to.
0: <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> anyway, but I, I stuck with it for for several years. They eventually bought an Apple II GS to replace the Apple IIe, um, and I took that off to college. And at college, I was exposed to Macintosh computers for the first time, and. At some point, I think in my, my second year, I started programming at the computer lab and asked for a, a, my own Mac for Christmas. And so, but, so yeah, that's uh, probably about eight years when I was, I was pure Apple II all day, every day.
2: And then uh, how did you find your way back to uh, the Garden of Eden, so to speak?
0: I think it was in about uh, 2010, That uh, the person, the family friend that my parents had sold our original Apple II back in the late '80s when we upgraded to the 2GS, uh, she sold it back to me. She hadn't used it. She hadn't used it in about ten years, fifteen years, but she used it for you know quite a while doing you know mail merge and 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 AppleWorks advanced advanced AppleWorks stuff. And then moved on herself, but she still had it in a closet, and she mailed the whole thing to me. Mailed, you know, a, a box of printer paper, which is like the least useful thing to do with the postal <laughs> service, I think. Anyway, um, <laughs> but she, I'm like, yeah, give me it all. She's like, okay, here you go. Charged me, just charged me for shipping. And so I got, my, I got my old Apple II back and I just, uh, you know, by then, of course, the Internet was around and there was this community of people who were insane and still using it or reusing it. And I could, like, buy modern hardware for it. I, I think the first thing I bought was a uh, micro drive uh, from what was then called Ultimate Micro. No, uh, Reactive. Reactive Micro. Um, and has now been merged into Ultimate Micro, that uh, gave me a mass storage device for the first time ever. And that was really a game changer for me. That was really what got me back into, like, this is a a thing. Like, I don't have to be swapping floppies all the time anymore, like some kind of 20th century peasant. I, I can... Like I can just turn the computer on and, you know, get a menu because it's, you know, there's like a hard drive and, and I I knew a little bit about ProDOS. I learned a lot about ProDOS in 2010 and 2011, like that it existed. And I learned about ciderpress and I learned about, you know, all these modern tools for dealing with disk images. And I found Asimov and I found all these other people and... Within a year, I'd found, you know, the Facebook group, the enthusiast group, and the uh, new, the news groups that were still kicking, and several other, you know, forums, and, you know, meanwhile, my, my wife is thinking I'm completely nuts, but happy, but oddly happy. <laughs> so, it's, it's hard to argue with that at the end of the day, and, you know, I had, I, I didn't spend all that much money on it, but it was certainly, you know, it was this big physical thing that was suddenly in what used to be our shared office and quickly became my office. And, you know, so I sort of slowly took over like this physical space, which was, I don't know what she was expecting in 2010, but that wasn't it.
2: That's sort of a trick (laughs) these days, isn't it? Because, you know, I mean, you can actually get a fairly decent 2E on... I don't know, eBay or something for, you know, less than 50 bucks if you do a little comparative shopping. So these days, it's not really even about the dollar amount. It's about the the footprint on your desk that this thing is taking up and slowly crowding everything else out of your office is kind of a metaphor, I think, for how the Apple II takes over our lives.
0: That, that completely mirrors <laughs> my experience from, from 2010 to 2012 when we moved to a new house, a bigger house, and by then it was clear that I needed, if not an entire room, certainly half of, an, of, of a room <laughs> with like a dedicated desk, which I am currently staring at. <laughs> awesome. Which has, which has an Apple II and 2E uh, and an Apple IIGS and two LCD, small LCD monitors. Thank you, Quinn, for turning me on <laughs> to the, the Night Owl LCD monitor. And, you know, a box of floppy disks over there in the corner and just – and yeah, over on the other side is a, two probably dead, certainly beyond my capability to fix right now, uh, five and a quarter inch floppy drives, including the one that I used at Kansas Fest, which has since died in the two weeks since I got home, because I'm very hard on floppy disks.
2: <laughs> well, as Jason and as floppy Jason drives. Scott says, they're, uh, they're on their way out anyway, so –
0: yeah, we're we're doing the best we can, trying to get stuff off of physical floppies.
2: So all of that so far sounds like a fairly you know um, standard uh, story for a lot of Apple II users who had it and then kind of went away from it for a while and found their way back. But I, what I'm not hearing in here is is there's there was no copy protection piracy thing way back then. So what got you into it in 2010 or whenever
0: you picked it up? Actually, I picked it up in uh, just about two and a half years ago in twenty-four, early twenty fourteen, and it was always something that I had wanted. Like as I said, I admired the people who did it, not necessarily their typographical skills um, <laughs> or their sense of aesthetics, but certainly the technical chops were there, and. And I just, I just didn't know. I mean, I just didn't know how to do that. And it had always fascinated me. And I had a couple of original discs that I had gotten on eBay, either as part of some other lot or that I, you know, particular games that I just loved, and for some reason I wanted an original of it. And so I just had about half a dozen original discs lying around. And I think uh, out of six, five were copy protected, because of course they were. And I just. I just set it, set out to do it. I, you know, I, I, I had a lot, I, we, anyone now, uh, has a lot more resources at our disposal. I wasn't plugged into any sort of pirate BBSs or anything back in the day. I didn't, I think I had like one, like the disc jockeys cracking disc from 1983 or something oh, that yeah. had all these text <laughs> files on it. That was just endlessly fascinating to me, but Way beyond my capability to understand anything when I was, you know, an early teen. But you know, in the interim, I've I've grown up and and I've I I, I look back on now on you know my early forays into uh, deep protection, and it's just embarrassing how how little I knew, and how little I knew that I knew and how much I thought I knew that I didn't know. And that's probably still true in the sense of, uh, you know, I wasn't there back in the day. I wasn't either on the pirate side or the producer side. I still don't know a whole lot about the industry of copy protection. What I do know, I've basically reverse engineered from the bits up, not through any sort of normal means like talking to people.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was a highlight of your E7's Bitstream talk for me last year, was it how you sort of reverse-engineered what the industry of copy protection looked like based on who was using these particular algorithms?
0: Yes, yes. And you really can trace, you know, it it really was, we we call it a cat-and-mouse game, but it really was, oh, hey, somebody invented something new, let's all go jump on it, either release our new stuff with it or re-release our old stuff with it or both, and... Everybody was using, you know, the latest thing, and then it got broken. And by broken, I mean not that Crackers broke it, but that, you know, it was integrated into the next version of Locksmith or Copy 2 Plus or Nibbles Away or whatever, EDD. And, And then, you know, the cycle started over, and that was a matter of months, really. But that just happened over and over and over again. And you know looking back on it 30 years later you can see exactly when particular development houses big big houses like scholastic which outsourced basically all their copy protection they they were like one of the ones that would just jump on the latest protection so you look at like a long running series like microzine which ran for what like 6 or 8 years and, you know, they started out with purely structural protection that put stuff in little spiral half-tracks. And then they moved to uh, something else and moved to the E7-bit stream at one point and then moved on. And then eventually by the end of the 90s, they had just made a company-wide decision to abandon copy protection altogether. Like, I mean, that's like a microcosm of the entire industry right there.
2: Now. It seems to me that between you and maybe some other individuals out there who are also doing some Apple II cracking, that there's there's a lot of I was I was surprised first just in general at, at how many titles there are out there that are still have never been successfully or completely cracked. Um, but a huge percentage of that seems to be the educational market. Is that am I right on that?
0: Yeah, that's been my experience. Just looking at it, you know, from from my vantage point, is that. Pirates back in the day were very focused on arcade type games and big name adventure games and basically nothing else. And there were some you know, by the end of the eighties. There were some automated tools that would deprotect things like mech or copy, you know, specific titles. But in the educational market. But generally, you were stuck with whatever the the bit copiers could use. But of course, that doesn't get you any closer to you know the digital now. Uh, that just gets you a, a copy protected physical. Just gets you two copy protected physical floppies instead of one. Right. Which, which doesn't get you any closer to you know being able to do the amazing things that Jason Scott has has pioneered on the archive of you know running emulators in pure javascript and and running these old programs you know running an entire computer in a browser so yeah back to your your question the eduware market was was vastly underserved by pirates because no you know nobody wanted to put up a bbs with like seven lines or whatever and you know <laughs> a two, a $2000 one megabyte hard drive or whatever the heck they were and and offer you know spanish irregular verbs in the future tense <laughs> i mean just le- nobody did that and so 30 years later we have very few of these we have uh, as i said we have a bunch of mech stuff because there were some automated tools and the copy protection is very light but even there i'm i've been finding in the last couple of years uh and um uh, Antoine uh, Vignau and Brian Weiser and Bill Martins, who are doing the mech.co, we're, we're all finding homemade copies of mech titles that we didn't even know existed. Like, the, the only record... Like, we don't have it in a product catalog. We don't have a poster about it. We don't have any sort of box for it. The only thing we have is somebody's handmade floppy with their, you know, 1980s handwriting... Uh, that says smoking it's up to you (laughs) wow literally that's it and this is as far as i can tell this is the world's last remaining copy of this (laughs) this mech title so like that's how far behind we are and if you look at like preserving all the software from that era that's how far behind we are we don't even know the things we're missing
1: well and that's sort of the Power of Passport, right, is that because it does particularly well on those those educational titles and the stuff that where they outsourced it, the copy protection, uh, and you know to be able to automate that 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 should be really really powerful. So you must be Jason Scott's favorite new person.
0: Well, I think I was Jason Scott's favorite old person, or I'd like to think so. <laughs> I mean, we're we're friends outside of the Apple II community, uh, and I'm always happy to see him at Kansas Fest and and go to Steak and Shake with him and so on. But yes, uh, to 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 the question of, of preservation, this lowers the barrier to entry. Uh, and one of the things in the show notes is linking to a guy named Jeremy, Jeremy. in, I think, New Zealand or Australia, who I've been in contact with, uh, who went through his own personal collection and was able to preserve with Passport, with the help of Passport, preserve several titles that I'd never even heard of, that that no one had ever cracked before, that just, you know, it just would have been rotten away on physical media for another 10 years until it finally went into a landfill. We would never have a copy of it. And he made a copy of it, and now it's up on the Internet Archive.
2: That's really great that you were able to achieve that with Passport.
0: That that was very heartwarming, yes. <laughs>
2: Some of these descriptions I read that are posted of some of the more recent cracks that have been floating around are these things seem like a Gordian knot where you know it's just this this impossible knot that you can't untangle and the more you pull on it the tighter it gets and has have the has there anything that is there anything out there that you haven't been able to crack yet?
0: Oh sure I have a whole drawer of things I can't crack yet but it's you know it's a completely different set than it was a year ago. And that may not be literally true, but it's probably about 80% true. But yes, uh, there are a lot of one-off protections or things that are just different enough that, you know, realistically, there won't ever be an automated way to strip off the copy protection and run them. Which is not to say it can't be done, but just that it needs to be done by hand, needs to be done one at a time. And what Passport allows is, you know, the people who have the skills to do that to focus on things like that. And that's not just me. That's There's a lot of people who are a lot more skilled at it than I am who are still active in, in removing copy protection from these types of disks. And, you know, so they get to, to work on, on the really hard stuff. And the stuff that used to be like sort of intermediate level and uh, beginner to intermediate level, but was the same from disk to disk to disk, can now be completely automated by someone who doesn't essentially have any skills at all. They just, they have a, they have an Apple II and they have an original disk.
1: Very cool. Yeah. it's the best kind of tool. So yeah, the moral of the story is everyone should uh, download Passport and start going through their own personal floppy collections because uh, you never know what you might have in your collection that, that nobody else uh, knows about or has, has uh, preserved. Uh, preserved yet so that's that's pretty exciting so um how um how how did you then find your way to kansas Fest for the first time
0: i don't remember exactly i think it was the facebook enthusiast group that uh where i learned that there was like this weird conference might also have been jason scott uh where i learned that there was this weird five-day conference where people just hung out and talked about apple II stuff and i think it was actually i think it was jason scott that uh, told me, yeah, like this is worth going to. Like this, I mean, there's there's actually some other stuff, you know, vintage uh, VCF and um, a few other like related conferences. But he's like, yeah, Kansas Fest is something special. You you should make the time. And I, you know, I made the the Faustian bargain with my wife. I mean, just promising her everything under the sun to <laughs> to be able to go, you know, sight unseen to driving two days. Thank God, I found a I found a carpool buddy, uh, a, another guy who lives like half an hour from me, and uh, and we drove for two days with a trunk full of like vintage computing equipment and just just completely ri- ridiculous tableau of of anyway. So, and my wife was very skeptical and was just convinced that these people that this was all a scam or that these people were you know. It was a cult, or y'all were y'all were like, <laughs> well, se- secretly serial—I know, right? Secretly serial <laughs> killers, or just I don't know. That has not been my experience, by the way. Everyone should come to <laughs> Kansas Fest. But we may be a cult, but we're not killers, not yet.
1: Yeah, I find very little killing happens. Yeah, and it's been it's been dropping every year, so that's that's a good trend.
2: And it's usually off campus. So we
0: yeah do all that. It's
1: all it's yep. officially nothing related to Kansas Fest.
0: You're gonna go edit that out, right? <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and I came back, and and I'm like, honey, this is my tribe. Th- these, th- this is it. Like, I didn't, I didn't even know <laughs> I had a tribe, but this is it. This is my, this is my tribe. This, yeah. I, and she's like, oh god, you you want to go again, don't you? I'm like, I'm so, honey, I'm so going again. <laughs> And I have every year, and now she's just—I've worn her down. Marriage, marriage is an ongoing negotiation, and <laughs> and, and it's just—it's awesome, and we're, we've never been in a better place. But I'm not sure Kansas Fest really helped with that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so, uh, and forgive me, I'm still chuckling at the thought of a little old lady, uh, mailing you a giant box of blank paper, <laughs> but, uh, is it, was it fun to have uh, your own Apple II back? And is that the one that you brought to Kansas Fest?
0: Yes, it is. Although, as you probably know from your own experience, there's a bit of a ship of Theseus thing going on where I've, I've slowly replaced, you know, parts either as they've gone bad, like the power supply or... Uh, You know, like the monitor, I replaced the big CRT monitor with a nice, small LCD monitor. And uh, floppy drives, of course, come and go, although I do have my original floppy drives. They don't work um, for reasons that are beyond my capabilities to fix. Uh, I had to replace the keyboard this year because I'd spilled grape soda on it about three months ago. And I I got a wonderful, uh, beautiful, nice Keyboard at the garage giveaway. That was the only piece of hardware that I uh, that I was really really hoping to get. I had been using a borrowed keyboard from my my carpool buddy for several months, and he wanted it back.
1: Yeah, it's uh, well. That, I think you win the award for most uh, literary reference on this show so far. But um, yeah, it's it's true. At some point, does uh, it's still the same computer anymore? Uh, hard to say. Um, it so, is still uh, the same.
0: It is still the same computer case and motherboard, although I have that my parents never bought the enhancement kit. I found that out the hard way in 2010 when I tried to boot Protoss 2 and it was like, nope. I'm like, what the heck? What is an What is an enhanced 2e? So I found that out the hard <laughs> way. Anyway, it's all good now. But yes, this is in some f- fashion or another, I am still using the Apple II that my parents bought in 1983, and that's just <laughs>
1: awesome.: So you, you mentioned uh, you've gone through a couple of floppy drives. You were imaging for much of your time at Kansas Fest. How many floppy drives did you burn through in that process?:
0: Five. <laughs> but most of them were, were three and a half inch, and most of them are still usable. I uh, just I didn't have anything with me to clean the heads. And uh, I, I actually, I have a head cleaning disc and the little cleaner solution. And I didn't bring it because I'm an idiot, but <laughs> ed, you can edit that part out too. But, and I didn't really <laughs> want to like take them. I didn't want to take them apart and, and clean them by hand. Uh, Cause I did that once two years ago under Tony Diaz's tutelage. And I'm just never doing that again. It's very difficult anyway. But yeah, we, we, uh, I set up my Apple II in the common room in the, in the corner, and uh, John Brooks, who was there for his first Kansas Fest, set up his uh, 2GS rig, and I, I got him set up with the appropriate uh, array of programs for imaging protected and unprotected disks. And we burned through about 800 floppy disks and then put them all back on the, the pool table uh, in the, for the giveaway. Uh, throughout the week, most of those are now up on the Internet Archive or Asma for both. I still have I still have about a hundred to to go through. They're just you know auto numbered, unlabeled. I just need to boot them in an emulator and see what the heck they are, and then label them and and anyway. But yeah, so but we did we did well. We preserved a lot of things that would otherwise just you know go into a trash heap or go into somebody's collection and never be seen again. And a lot of it was uh, educational stuff. There was a whole series of things on uh, chemistry and physics and astronomy. Obviously, some science teacher got rid of his collection and it ended up in the giveaway this year. But uh, it was stuff I'd never seen before, and, and that nobody had ever heard of, and it had no probably no commercial value even at the time. It probably didn't even it was probably locally produced, uh, maybe with uh, some educational grant. From the, from the government, or maybe not, and just a whole series of, of things, really great stuff, some of it, um, and even the bad stuff is I mean who am I to judge? you know what what the future is going to find important? So we imaged everything we could and then handed off the physical media to somebody else who actually wanted it. I don't want it. I have I had <laughs> a lot of floppy disks a- and a wife. did I mention did I mention <laughs> I have a wife? Yes
1: yeah, a very, who very understanding one. Is
0: very, very understanding. I love you, honey. <laughs> but, but I still have about eighteen hundred floppy disks in my office, Ooh. and that doesn't take up a whole lot of room because the boxes are somewhere else. But it takes up enough room that you'd notice. It's a lot of shoeboxes.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. So, uh, so what's next for Mark Pilgrim?
0: Oh, I don't know. Sleeping. Napping, <laughs> um, Pokemon hunting. R- literally, right after this, we, we're done recording this. I promised my kids I'd go Pokemon hunting with them. They're all into the whatever the Pokemon go. Little do they know that I I installed an Apple II emulator on my phone, so I can be happy while they're out, you know, mm-hmm. staring at their devices. My
1: God, it's become
2: a family activity. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so are you? Well, they, keep they're back? just they they're just too young like just barely too young to go wandering around by themselves and anyway they want they they don't want to wander around in our neighborhood cuz it's boring they want to go to the, they want to go to the Pokestop, stop you know 2 miles down the road anyway this is not a pokemon podcast but but it could anyway, be <laughs> so, and that's that's what i'm doing later tonight <laughs> You These asked. days,
1: every podcast is a Pokemon podcast. I'm afraid. I know, right? It's everywhere. So, I mean, are you going to keep uh, cracking stuff and keep expanding Passport? Uh, what's What's next in your Apple II life?
0: Probably keep expanding Passport. Uh, there are several. I I have several things that I had sort of pushed to you know post Kansas Fest release just to uh, get a stable release, and uh, and that worked out well. But there's certainly a, some things on my list uh obvious expansion opportunities uh, that, that would allow it to crack you know a whole range a whole new range worth of disks uh, a whole new you know category of, of protection and uh, we, we, I haven't really hit the the 80 20 point yet uh, there, so there's still like a bunch of low-hanging fruit that I just haven't had a chance in six months to uh, to add. And after that, who knows? Maybe that'll take Maybe that'll take 100% of my time. Maybe by then I'll be burned out. Maybe I'll uh, go back to cracking them one at a time.
1: Cool. Well, that's, uh, we'll definitely be here to to report on that, whichever way it goes. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of reporting, yeah, we've got a lot of news to cover since we've been gone for a couple of months. So uh, why don't we dive on into that?
0: It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News.
1: So uh, why don't we start with uh, this first item? Uh, I'm going to jump out of order here a little bit in our notes uh, since we've been talking about passport. Uh, this fellow has a nice blog post on how he's using it to uh, preserve his uh, disks, and uh, it's a it's a good read. Uh, how did you find this one, Mike?
2: Uh, this is the um, Jeremy Barhide write up. Is that is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think this is the same Jeremy that that Mark mentioned earlier. Is that correct, Mark? Yes. Um, and I was um actually doing a little research on on Mark and his work at Kansas Fest, and uh, this popped up as one of the top uh, search hits, and I'm glad that it did, because there's a lot of really great information, uh, not only on Passport, but putting it to to use in a real-world situation.
1: Yeah, very cool stuff.
2: And he's using, it looks like, the, uh, the floppy EMU, which we talk about a whole lot on the show, so mm-hmm. extra points there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of it myself. Uh, all right. So speaking of archiving, uh, this is a cool one. The uh, complete archives of Genie and Delphi are now online again. I was uh, flipping through this a little earlier today, and uh, it's uh, it's really fun. Uh, I was never on either of these services, but uh, you know, I was on some of the news groups and stuff back in the day, and it's fun to sort of see these old conversations from the you know '90s and, and earlier uh, you know, people solving the same, a lot of the same problems that we solve today, but without the benefit of some of our modern tools. So, uh, that's a, that's a really good read.
2: Yeah. So, so the, um, the newsletters, uh, that the, the monthly or weekly newsletters that were put out called were called the lamp. Uh, there was genie lamp and genie a2 pro lamp. And later I think there was a Delphi version of it. And, I think they were done variously by, um, Lyle, I think his name is Lyle, um, Lyle Syverson and Ryan Sinaga and a couple of other people, which sort of gave you um, a little condensed version of all the good stuff, but the actual archives hadn't been on online for quite some time now and they're not only, not only are they back, but thanks to the hard work of David Finnegan, they're all indexed and searchable and. Uh, I was enjoying reading through some of the message threads that had less to do about Apple II and more about um, users complaining about Delphi's prices increase and, and what they were going to do with the new hour structure and stuff like that. It's definitely a, <laughs> a
1: real window in time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, before everyone was sure what the internet was going to be, and the, these companies were all trying to figure out uh, how to make money doing what they're doing. But uh,
2: clearly, Mark- I'm sorry, uh, but clearly after the heyday of the Apple II.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mark, were you ever on any of these online services?
0: I was not. Uh, my first internet experience was the actual internet in, <laughs> at, in in college.
1: Yeah, that was mine too. I looked at a lot of these services and it just seemed like the internet seemed imminent at, th- at that point. And I just sort of felt like these services were sort of a waste of time. I wasn't sure what the advantage was. But uh, uh, yeah, they were certainly popular amongst Apple II users in many cases.
2: <laughs> right. Quinn's too good for that.
1: <laughs> well, like like a lot of people, I had access to the real internet by then, so I was sure, sp- yeah. spoiled, I guess. <laughs> and I I, and I, yeah, well, and at home actually, I clung to BBSs for a really long time. Oh uh, yeah, because uh, you know a lot of these services were, were were American and they didn't always have Canadian local dial up numbers, so most of them I didn't have access to anyway. So it was a case of you know BBSs and then straight to the internet when uh, when it became available in university. So. Um, All right, well, moving right along, Uh, as we alluded to earlier in the show, the dates for Kansas Fest 2017 have been announced. The Kansas Fest committee has been aggressive lately about announcing uh, next year's show during the current one. So that's really exciting. It makes it easy for people to plan. And uh, in 2017, it will be July 18th through the 23rd, and again at Rockhurst University. So mark your calendars. Already done. (laughs) Yeah, I'll definitely be there. Mark will be there. Mike, hopefully maybe 2017 will be your return.
2: Maybe that'll be the lucky year.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're all pulling for you. Uh, <laughs> all right. Next up. Uh, so one of the interesting things about this year's Kansas Fest is that there was a uh, reporter uh, roving around. And uh, much like there was last year, in fact, uh, there was a, a uh, vice reporter uh, for Motherboard or however that works. I don't know. One of them is the blog and one of them is the column or something. I don't know. Um the internet is hard. But uh, this year there was another reporter uh, wandering around, a fellow by the name of uh, David Pirini, and he had his camera and his. Uh reporter notepad, and he wrote a series of articles on Cult of Mac for uh, All About Kansas Fest. Uh, They're all a really fun read. I think he really does a great job of capturing the the feel of the event and lots of the uh, characters that uh, make it what it is. So we'll link to, uh, uh, A2 Central actually did a really nice summary of all these articles, so we will link to that. And from there, you can read all about it.
2: Yeah, I think if you had to pick one, though, my recommendation would
1: definitely be the interview with Martin. Mm-hmm, for sure, I like the one about Javier as well. Actually, one
0: yeah, of the articles—I'm not sure which one—but one of the articles has a picture of my feet.
1: <laughs> it's Good your, to know. Uh, your your 15 minutes of fame. I'm famous.
0: <laughs> yes, foot famous. No, like my my—I was whatever. I was at my my station in the common area, and and I had this you know box of random hardware, including dead drives and so on. You know perfectly normal thing to have at Kansas Fest but from an out you know from an outside eye it probably looked very interesting and i was just resting my feet inside the because that's that's again a perfectly normal thing to do and and he i saw him like pointing the camera i'm like do you want me to move my feet he's like no actually i want the feet in the shot that's the perfect shot hmm. that's what i'm that's what i'm going for so my <laughs> my feet are fine that's all i have on that <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right uh well at the same time as kansas fest every year uh it's now a tradition that uh was fest also takes place which is uh that's was with a capital o z as in australia uh it's a play on words uh in case anyone didn't get that <laughs> so it's a very similar sort of event that takes place in australia every year and this is the fourth one and uh for anyone who's not uh following along they're tracking these wasfests in hexadecimal so this is uh, wasfest dollar sign i'm um, really looking forward to the 10th one i feel like that's when this joke is really going to hit hit its stride and uh, you know i think i think it'll be worth the wait but uh, in any case we've got a nice uh, recap of that event if you weren't able to attend and uh, every year we attempt a uh, skype link up with uh, wasfest um and it occurs at some hideous hour of the night uh, or morning or something because of the time difference, but uh, I've never actually made it to that, so I'm not sure how well that goes. Uh, Mark, were you there for that this year? No. (laughs) Okay, so we'll assume that worked well and everybody had a good time.
2: Well, then it would be a change from when I used to go.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Because that never went well. (laughs) Yeah, I suspect technical difficulties probably got the better of that, but nevertheless, if you are in Australia and uh, unlike... Friend of the show, Michael Mohern. you can't make the extremely long trek to uh, uh, all the way from Australia to Kansas Fest. You can go to Fest instead. And similarly, uh, there's one in uh, France as well every year, uh, Apple II Festival France. Uh, this doesn't quite overlap with K-Fest. It's uh, coming up soon uh, in August. Actually, by the time this show goes out, you may have missed it. So I hope you all had fun. <laughs> and you somehow know about it besides this show but uh it's the 12th and 16th of august and uh you know plan for it next year if you missed uh missed it this year it's about the same time every year
2: wow so it's it's almost as long as kansas fest now
1: yeah yeah there it's it's expanding you know uh just before the show i was listening to the cult of mac podcast where they also reference kansas fest this year Uh, in fact we can try to link to that in the show notes if i can dig that up and uh, they mentioned that uh, you know of all the Apple products, the Apple II is the only one that has a, an annual festival dedicated to it. Uh, well, in fact, there are three annual festivals at least dedicated to it uh, every year that are all multiple multiple days in length. So take that all other Apple products. Uh, and speaking of festivals and conferences and things, uh, VCF West is happening uh Right now, so again, that doesn't help anyone listening to the show, but uh, this is a this is a big deal because VCF West was gone for for basically forever, and uh, it was a really strange thing that the birthplace of computers somehow didn't have a VCF. So it's good to see them doing it on the West Coast once again.
2: Yeah, they started out just as they they were the original VCF and I think it was like 98 99 for 2 years. I went to the second year, I know I didn't make the first one. Uh and then it just hasn't happened since then. So really awesome to see it back again. I think all of these are 2-day events usually like Saturday and Sunday, but they have some uh usually really great speakers and it looks like there's an Apple 1 showing up um at at this year's which seems to be a common thing these days. But yeah, lots of great stuff to see there, especially if you, if you want to get away from all Apple all the time. I don't know why you would, but you'll see a lot more than just Apple there.
1: Very nice. Mark, have you ever been to any of these other shows besides Kansas Fest?
0: Did I mention I have a wife? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll take that as a no. Yeah, and why I get, would you really?
0: I get one.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Every <You pick. laughs> year, I get one. I choose Kansas Fest. No I, I've, I've never I've never been.
1: Well, you've chosen quality over quantity I respect that. All right well we've talked a lot about uh, new software development that comes about from Kansas Fest and related activities and uh, we've got a new game uh, that has surfaced uh, through various sources. Uh, I found it on a2 central and Mike you've got a link here to a Google group uh, to conversation about it uh, but uh, yeah it's called Space 4048. And uh, it's a game written in low res, and uh, there's a video to, uh, sort of trailer for it, sample gameplay that we'll link to. And I got to say, this thing uh, is a lot of fun. It's, uh, I believe it's one of these projects where, much like uh, a lot of us have been doing, where they kind of are getting back to the stuff that they wanted to do when they were younger and didn't have the resources or the knowledge or whatever to do it, uh, and uh, writing a, a video game in assembly is one of those things. So Space 4048 is this fellow's project uh, along those lines. And uh, I have to say, for low res, it's, it's really quite charming. Uh, it looks very playable. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Demon Attack with a little bit of uh, Galaxian in there. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you watched the yeah. video for this, Mike?
2: I have, yeah. That's, uh, that's a great way to put it. It looks like it's uh, designed to run on any 48K Apple II, hence the mm-hmm. low res.
1: Yeah, very nice. And uh, he says uh, in one of the comments, I think the comment on the video says uh, it works best if you watch it at a small size or kind of squint your eyes a little bit, which <laughs> uh, I think is good advice because, yeah, it does look good. But uh, if you stare at it too closely, the low res will, uh, will start to hurt your brain a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it looks really great. All right. So the folks at CallAPPLE or CallApple have been busy. Uh, they have a couple of new books announced. Uh, talk to us about this one, Mike.
2: Yeah, so this is Bill Martins and Brian Weiser, uh who we mentioned earlier in the show, and they've uh as has become their habit at uh Kansas Fest time, they've released a couple of new books. Um I, I know that they had previously announced um there was a collection or there is a collection of all of Mike Harvey's um, editorial columns from the years at Nibble Magazine, all collected into one nice volume. Uh, they made that available, I think, a little bit beforehand, so that you could pre-order it and get it signed at Kansas Fest. But um, they also showed up with printed versions of the Apple II monitor peeled, which is a great tech manual that I highly recommend, and an enhanced version of What's Where in the Apple. This uh, this book has gone back, um, goes back many years, and there were a bunch of different versions that popped up back then. And uh, a couple of years back, Bob Tripp decided to revisit um, the original and went through and came up with a nice e-version and uh, a PDF that had all the bugs fixed and there were some typos and things like that. And and, uh, they have since gone through it again. This time, I think it was mostly Bill uh, and Brian's effort, but they now have the advanced or the, the enhanced version, which includes, like, I think every version of every Apple II that Apple ever even thought about. So... And I think these are uh yeah, they look like they're self they're doing self printing through Lulu. So you're looking at like fifty dollars for the soft cover and seventy dollars for the hardcover for what's where, twenty bucks for um the soft cover of Apple II monitor peeled and thirty for the hardcover.
1: Very cool. Yeah, as someone, uh, as someone who has also recently gotten back into Apple II programming, I can attest that the What's Where in the Apple II book is, is excellent. Uh, there's There's really... Nothing quite like it. I mean, there are there's a lot of information in that book that is not anywhere else. Uh, so when I was doing a lot of reverse engineering of Apple Soft for, you know, my callback system and Wii GUI and stuff, uh, I, I went to what's where uh, a lot. And as far as I know, those books aren't available uh, online anywhere. So if you uh, if you want them, uh, call EPPLE is the place to go. All right, so next up, we got a little bit of uh, Marina IP news. So for anyone who isn't familiar, Marina is the TCP/IP stack for eight-bit Apple II's, uh, which still uh, hurts my brain a little bit that that's even possible. <laughs> and it's a very, very cool piece <laughs> of programming. And uh, so he's got uh, he's got an update for. Uh, let's see, what's he updated here? Mike, help me out.
2: Uh, so this is for this is the June twenty sixteen update. Um, looks like maybe just some minor bug fixes. Um, I'm not seeing a whole lot of new here, but um, I think the the most important part of the announcement probably is that moving forward, he's not going to be working on this really anymore unless there are any show-stopping um, um, bugs or anything like that. But uh, it seems fairly complete. I, I like that. I, I sort of like and sort of don't that he, um, you know, in the Google Groups announcement, basically said it's the the most useful thing that nobody's using or something like that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. For an IP stack that doesn't do anything, it's now more capable than ever. Um, <laughs> so it's there's this nice framework out there for anyone who wants to play with it. it looks like uh, David, who's um, he is uh, one of our younger uh, friends of the show, um, is is discovering that as as life moves on, time gets kind of short, and suddenly you you end up doing other things. So um, if this is the final version, then, you know, thank you for what you've done, David. This is really awesome. And we hope somebody picks up the gauntlet and continues to develop.
1: Yeah. Well, and honestly, it- not sure anyone even needs to. The nice thing about developing for thirty-year-old hardware is that it's static. So, well, uh, you know, once yeah. <laughs> someone gets something working, like it's done, that job is done. So we will have TCP/IP now for eight-bit Apple II's forever. I mean, there might be some edge case somewhere, like oh, if I put the card in slot five, it doesn't work or something. But for the most part, you know, once once these things are done, they're done. They don't uh, need constant updates like modern software does. And uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, and you know, he makes the point in this post that uh, the Ethernet 2, you know, he was originally developing with the Ethernet in mind, but the Ethernet 2 does the TCPIP stack in hardware on the card. So it kind of renders Marina somewhat unnecessary. Um, and it's, you know, the Ethernet 2 is a much better way to do it because, you know, with the 6502 at one megahertz trying to manage the TCPIP stack, it's hard to imagine there'd be much horsepower left to do anything else with that TCPIP. Data, so uh, this uh, may you know may end up not being as as uh, as necessary as the Ethernet two catches on, but very cool. And he uh, goes on to describe a couple of new projects that he's got in the pipeline. He's uh, excited to get started on. So uh, yeah, thank uh, thank you for that work for sure on Marina IP. Well, speaking of uh, Apple two projects i guess i'd uh, God, mike I did we talked up beforehand about not letting me do the segues did uh, this is why <laughs> uh, speaking of speaking of apple 2 stuff i guess segway break segway break <laughs> uh combo breaker okay uh i'm terrible at this you get what you pay for next hosts <laughs> <laughs> yes speaking of stuff uh there's all right so this this is actually a news item i really love uh over on uh, Compsys Apple 2 someone has put together a list of every Apple II project on GitHub. And, and uh, there are... Mr. Finnegan... Oh, okay. There you go. Thanks for for that fact. Uh, Yeah, there are way more of these projects than I ever would have imagined, in fact. And this research is quite thorough because I I went to look at this link. I'm like, oh, I should add my own projects. And uh, he found them all. So (laughs) uh, including uh, an unannounced project that I have not told a single soul about, uh, because I started working on it during this year's Kansas Fest. (laughs) So, uh, impressively thorough, this list, I have to say. Uh, Somehow he managed to find uh, just about everything. Um, And yeah, on that subject, if you find uh, my unfinished project, you'll know because it appears to have no documentation and the source code is garbage and that doesn't work. Uh, Just yeah, rest assured I'm still working on that and hopefully can talk about it next year at Kansas Fest. But uh, yeah, if you want to see all the really amazing stuff that everyone else is doing on the Apple II, uh, this GitHub directory is your one-stop shop.
0: Wait, Quinn, so you're saying that you put something on GitHub that has no documentation and terrible source code?
1: Yes, I know. Shocking, right? What? <laughs> that
0: never happens.
1: Yeah. So in other words, it's just like everything else on GitHub. Is that... Yeah. We're going for that. Uh Lol. Okay. Uh, moving right along. Uh, the inventor of Logo, I'm afraid, has uh, departed the Apple II community forever. Uh, this is Seymour. I'm going to say Papert, It's probably French, so Papel, perhaps. Uh, Mike, how did you find this one?
2: Uh, how did I find it? I I don't remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if you go to MIT News, the the, uh, the the article is there, and you can read about it. He uh, was a professor emeritus at uh, MIT. Uh, he died at 88 years old. His um the the central tenant to his Theory of learning is that people build uh, knowledge most effectively when they are actively engaged in constructing things in the world. So it would make sense that he would come up with something like Logo. Anyway, they, the article is well-written and um, fairly in-depth and talks does talk about the history of um, Logo and how he developed that and where it came from and where he had hoped it would go.
1: Yeah the uh, the philosophy of, ed- of education in question is called constructivism and it's actually kind of in vogue again with uh modern things like uh Minecraft uh min- Minecraft and uh Mindstorms Lego and such things so uh, it's yeah it's kind of in vogue again which you know I'm glad to see because I don't know anything about education but uh, I sure do like building stuff so I'm glad that they're doing that in schools
2: Seymour however is no longer in vogue
1: eh, at <laughs> <laughs> wow. Too soon, wow. too soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you want to know more about uh, logo, I would recommend going to the Kansas Fest video archives, where um, uh, the uh Actually, no, I was going for uh, Peter Newbauer there. Yeah, Peter Newbauer uh, is a, a big fan of logo and one of the Kansas Fest committee members, and he does uh, he's done a bunch of sessions on logo at Kansas Fest, and uh, I've really enjoyed uh, all of them. Uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find an Apple II owner who doesn't have a fond memory of Logo. Uh, my personal favorite was uh, a later version called Logo Writer that actually had uh, kind of a sprite system in it, and you could make little little movies and little games and stuff. So we uh, we did a lot of that back in school when we were supposed
0: to be doing other things.
1: Uh, Mark, did you ever use Logo?
0: Oh yes, uh, I was a wonderful. I have wonderful memories of Terrapin Logo in particular from a summer computer camp that I went to one year and I don't I don't remember which version it was probably uh, version 2 but uh, yes I I still have some logo programs that I wrote from back in the day that I've, I've since transferred to disk images
1: awesome yeah you know, Peter Newbauer has uh, kind of rekindled some of my interest in it and I might just start to... Uh, writing some stuff in it for fun it's actually still in use in in mo- on modern machines there are actually modern implementations of it so uh, it's not just for drawing spirograph images it's actually quite a full-fledged uh, elegant programming language uh, still called
2: uh, still called Terrapin oh, how about that And they will still sue you for putting their stuff up
1: <laughs> okay noted uh, so we won't be running passport on that I,
2: I, I scanned uh, I scanned a bunch of their um, Apple II Terrapin logo manuals and stuff, and immediately got a takedown letter from them.
1: Hmm. Goodness. Okay. Friendly folks over there. Mm, indeed. Logo. <laughs> so what you would not do in Logo, however, is write a vast new RPG for the Apple II. Huh? How about that segue? Yeah. Nice. You liked it. You liked it. Nice. <laughs> so the, uh, the Lawless Legends team gave their annual update at Kansas Fest. And, uh, you know, it was, it was good. You know, we saw a couple new features and they sure, showed up sure. the new font engine and it was all fine. Uh, and then, of course, Martin Hay did his signature uh, one more <laughs> thing. And uh, mic drop. S- <laughs> yes, the mic drop this year was that while we're all waiting for Lawless Legends, uh, they went ahead and released another new entire new game uh, at Kansas Fest. And it's called Ancient Legends. It's based on the Lawless Legends engine. And uh, not only did they release it and release all the source code on GitHub, which we will uh, link to in the show notes, they released the source code on GitHub live during Martin's presentation. And uh, the rest of us should just go home because we can't make Kansas Fest presentations this good. But uh, <laughs> they, they uh, had a trivia uh, puzzle where, or a game where they gave away five copies of Ancient Legends on floppy disks with like professional-made labels and everything. Very nice looking. Uh, and uh, actually, they're copy protected as well, which uh, I found amusing. And uh, they gave these five copies away to some lucky folks. I think the very first copy went to uh, Carrington. Who uh, the the question was, what was I think what was the name of the tree or something? There was something about the name of a tree. And uh, so yeah, Carrington immediately. Uh, went to the GitHub link that was in Martin's slides and uh, just started searching the code for the word tree <laughs> and uh, found it within a couple of minutes. So uh, I think the intent was you were supposed to play the game uh, and then find this tree. But uh, yeah, Carrington cheated and or uh, used the Kirk maneuver or something,
0: uh, however you want to look you at it. change that. the parameters of the test.
1: Yes, there you go. Yes, the uh, what do they call that? Uh, help me out here, nerds. The Star Trek Kirk thing.
0: Kobayashi Maru.
1: Thank you. Okay, I knew one of you two would know that. I did,
2: All but right. I didn't want to admit what a nerd I was. So. <laughs> Seriously,
1: <laughs> we we co-host an Apple Two podcast. Mike, I think that ship is sailed.
2: Oh. Man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and to answer your your inevitable question, no, Passport cannot automatically crack the uh, copy protected floppies, but I but I did image them, and I will add support for it even if it's the only one off i have to do
1: <laughs> it's personal now right
0: martin created a new copy protection scheme in 2016
1: really well
0: That's i don't know a... if it's i mean it's probably not terribly difficult but it, like it's not one of the classic ones
1: okay so, so something... now
0: i i have to crack it <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, uh, the cat and mouse
0: the cat and mouse game is back <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was just uh, on hiatus for a little while. All right, moving right along. Uh, speaking of things no longer being on hiatus, he huh? has another good one. Uh, wow. Halt and Catch Fire is back. That's right. Everybody's love-hate relationship, I guess, with network television uh, is uh, has been rekindled, and season three is coming back August 23rd, which is probably before this show is going to air. So uh, suffice to say, uh, you should go, and, uh, go back and watch... Episode 1, I guess. Uh, I uh, I probably won't be watching this one uh, for a while, at least, because I cut my cable this year, which I'm very, very happy about. Uh, but, uh, Mike, are you going to be watching?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. It was a little bit scary there for a while, because they had announced, like right after the season ended, that it was going to be renewed, but the ratings were down and then there was like nothing and nothing. And they kept announcing dates for all the other shows and nothing for this one. And it started to feel like, well, maybe they're going to cancel it after all. And then uh, a week or two ago, they announced that uh, they finally told us what the date would be. So yay for us.
1: Yeah. Sometimes the gaps between seasons are getting, I think they're getting longer as these, you know, modern shows get more and more complex and expensive to make. the. I find the seasons are getting shorter and the gaps between are getting longer. Uh, I think uh, Netflix has taken that to new heights. Uh, season 2 of Marco Polo was uh, two and a half years or something after season 1. Wow. Which I think might be a record. But uh, anyway, that has nothing to do with Apple IIs. Uh Mark, are you uh, watching Halt and Catch Fire?
0: No. Never even heard of it.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's...
0: Unlike you nerds. <laughs>
1: oh. <laughs> That's that's fair. You know, I, I feel like that's an accurate characterization. All right, well, we've talked enough about Halt and Catch Fire on this show, so we don't need to re-summarize it. Uh, TV show, blah, blah, retro computers, yay. Okay, uh, next up, we've got an interview on Gizmodo uh, f- oh. of some early hackers in a group called the Inner Circle. And this is a pretty interesting story, not entirely Apple IIs, sp- specific or related, but uh, it is a good read anyway. Um, Mike, talk to us a little bit about this one.
2: Yeah, so uh, these days, um, you know, the um, tell-all behind-the-scenes histories of computer companies and hacking groups and things are all all over the place, and they're a dime a dozen. But back in 85, there weren't that many uh, books like this. Um, There was one that came out called Out of the Inner Circle, and it was written by a, a boy named uh, Bill Landreth. And uh, the story of what happened to Bill afterwards is actually almost as in- as interesting as what he tells in the book. Um, and at some point, I guess, uh, someone over at Gizmodo decided to follow up and find Bill and see what had happened to him. Um, and they managed to get in touch with Bill and one other hacker from the the infamous Inner Circle hacking group and uh, sat down and had quite an in-depth interview with him. It's a very, uh, very good read, and I highly recommend it and you can get cheap copies of out of the inner circle on Amazon right now.
1: Oh, very cool. Yeah, that article is a good read. It's a long read, so if you got some uh, some time, I recommend it. It's uh, uh the TLDR is actually that uh, Bill Landreth is now uh, actually homeless in Santa Monica. So, uh he's uh, had quite a quite a crazy uh trip through life, uh, but he's working on a screenplay it sounds like and he's got other uh, other big plans. So, uh certainly sounds like an interesting character that guy. Good read. All right. Well, back to hardware for a minute. Uh, A2 Heaven, everyone's favorite mad Bulgarian, uh, is crazy going at it again. Uh, So now we've uh, got some new products. We've got uh, Passport MIDI card clone, not to be confused with the Passport software product uh, of recent mention. And uh, he's got a new battery-backed-up 2GS RAM card, actually a couple of those. Uh, And uh, has he got a new Apple II VGA card, Mike? What's that about? Uh, No,
2: I think there's just, I just noticed that they were back in stock. They had been out of stock for Mm. a while. So if you. Okay. So that's the Apple 2C one. Well, the 2C NTSC is out of stock. There's another one simply labeled uh, Apple 2C VGA uh, that is available right now.
1: Okay. And is he also selling, he's been working on uh, the VGA add-on for the uh, RAM, uh, RAMworks board. Uh, Is that available yet? Do you know?
2: Um, I'm seeing, so he's got the Ram Factor 8M and the Ram Works 8M. I don't think those are the add-ons. Those are those are the battery backup standalone cards.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: There's another one called the Piggyback 8M, 8 meg. Uh, and that is, in fact, the Ram Works 3 add-on. And okay. So that's available right now for $79.99 US dollars.
1: Excellent. Yeah, he's been teasing that one on the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group for a while, so great to see it in the store.
2: And as with all this stuff, they tend to be made in short runs, so get them now if you want them.
1: Yeah, if you blink, they're gone, so definitely uh, buy them while you can. Uh, well, and he's uh, he's not alone in creating crazy new cards. Uh, Ian Kim in Korea, who we've talked off and on about quite a bit lately, has also been busy. Uh, he has made uh, his own version of, uh, of the Passport Mini card, and uh, he's also cloned the Turbo 7 CPM card for the 2GS, so it's all... Always a little bit hard to tell with his blog what's available and how you actually buy it, but it looks like the MIDI card is still in production. He's showing a prototype of it, but the Turbo 7 card is now available for sale. If you want to run CPM on your 2GS, that appears to be possible. I wasn't able to find an actual link to click to buy it. Uh, Do you know how to do that, Mike? Is he selling them on eBay or... It's a little bit frustrating
2: because some of the website is, is in, in – I, I, I assume that's – I don't know what language that is. Korean, I think. Um, yeah, I'm Korean, and some of it's in English, and, and so the translator just goes nuts if you try to feed it through that way. Uh, I, I don't see anything – I don't see it for sale. There is a category bar off to the left here, but I click on the sale button and nothing happens. So I'm not sure. Um,
1: we'll, dig, we'll, it's, we'll dig around a bit and see if we can find it. I, th- I yeah, think he's um, been selling some stuff on eBay. So there might be one of those links might be a link to his eBay storefront. We'll try and find that. Um, I think because uh, he's, he's got a blog. His, his, his site is sort of half blog and half storefront. and It's not clear exactly uh, how to buy things sometimes. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll try and <laughs> track that down. But it does exist. There are photos of it. Uh, so if you want to run CPM on your 2GS, it is uh, definitely possible.
2: And if you're looking for what it's compatible with, it is a, it is a Microsoft soft card clone.
1: Very cool. All right. Uh, and just the hardware just keeps coming. Uh, the um, more news on the Manila Gear 4Sonic 4-Channel Sound Card. Uh, it's ready to ship. Is that the news here?
2: Yeah. It's, uh, I saw this um, over on Call Apple. actually. He's decided that it's time to – it looks like it's time to start shipping the 4Sonic 4-Channel Sound Card that they had announced back in July.
1: Very, very cool. And uh, actually, Antoine Vigneault teased on Facebook, or maybe it was Twitter the other day, that uh, he bought two of these, and he's got eight speakers uh, getting set up. So he's doing something uh, over there. I'm smelling a new demo maybe in the pipeline. Uh, There might be a demo that only two people on Earth can actually get full enjoyment out of (laughs) if it requires two four-sonic, four-channel sound cards and eight speakers. But I love that that exists. Um Mark, have you got any of these fancy modern cards in your Apple II? Uh
0: I do have the A two Heaven RAM fa- uh what is it? The eight megabyte um mm-hmm. RAM, Ram, Ram RAM works. works RAM RAM, the RAM works. Um and I do have the VGA uh add-on uh but I'm I'm not currently using it.
1: All right. Well, uh moving right along, Kansas Fest regular Javier Fiera. I'm sorry if I'm butchering your last name, Javier. He's the, uh, better known as the RetroBite Guru. And mm-hmm. he also started the Apple II FAC, which is uh, sort of a way to consolidate all of the information that uh, is out there about the Apple II. Uh, in particular, I think it was built in response to the 700th time someone asked on the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group, how do I plug VGA monitor into my 2GS? Uh, the answer is you. Can't, but you can sort of, and it's complicated. And yeah, that is, we're all tired of answering that question, I think. Uh, but uh, he has, uh, looks Grinchers. like open- <laughs> Yes, I, I, I think I answered it four or five times, and then I just gave up.
0: I am sensing some lingering resentment in your, in your <laughs> voice.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the the urge to gatekeep is sometimes strong in these communities, but it's it's great that we constantly have new people coming into the Apple II Enthusiast Facebook group. Uh, but Facebook is so terrible at finding information on that people don't realize that these questions have been asked and answered. But uh, that's uh, part of what Javier is hoping to solve here with Apple II FAC. Um Hopefully, well, can...
2: sometimes sometimes Quinn's just you know general low grade hostility towards me eventually mm-hmm. spills out uh, towards some of the listeners. Sometimes.
1: So. Yeah, well, I find hostility is its own reward. It's kind of an end unto it. Itself really. Mm, yes. So uh, Javier has opened a storefront at Apple II Fac and he's selling uh, Apple II shirts and coffee mugs. So who doesn't want more of those, right? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, at Kansas Fest this year, we saw some really great t shirts. Uh, someone had uh, a t shirt of the Red Book cover, which I really, really <laughs> loved. And uh, That's of, course, awesome. yeah, of course, Mark, you've got that one of the uh, uh, E7 Bitstream and you were wearing one uh with a, a gumball screenshot on it which I love.
0: Yes. <laughs> also a a special shout out to Kate St- Scott Nicky, who came to Kansas Fest for the first time and was wearing uh 8-bit Mario and Donkey Kong uh, dresses that she sewed herself.
1: Yes, and actually she won the uh annual tie contest with a floppy disk themed uh dress that she made. So that was just fantastic. So she she crushed it. She was uh, a big hit at the show. Um, so hopefully hopefully she'll be back next year. We had a lot of first timers this year, and it was great to see everybody, new faces. Uh, let's see. Well, we were talking about Antoine Vigneault. Uh, he's been busy. Uh, French Touch has released a new demo that plays music on a mocking board while loading from a five-of-a-quarter-inch disc. And this was a common stunt in two GS demos, but uh, to do this on an 8-bit is pretty fantastic, I have to say. Have you watched this one, Mike?
0: It's stunning. It's <laughs> yeah, just it really astonishing. <laughs> like, I, I just can't believe that that's an actual... One megahertz Apple II, loading high-res images from a five and a quarter-inch floppy drive, playing this wild music at the same time with no skips or stutters or interruptions or any sort of like anything. It just it's it's stunning.
1: Yeah, it really is. Uh, it's one of those things where the more you know about the Apple II and how it works, the more impressive this this feat is. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's a real technical tour de force to be able to do this. So uh yeah, the French touch continues to show us all how it's done. <laughs> uh, Alright, well speaking of uh the elite of our programmers, uh Jesse Blue of Ninja Force has updated Kaboom to version 1.03. and so it now supports the uh four play joystick card. Uh, There was rumors, I think, last month that that was going to happen, so it finally has, which is excellent. Uh, Kaboom being a Bomberman clone, it's uh, perhaps best experienced with four people, so uh, it's great that uh, there will be a way to do that. And in fact, we previewed this at uh, Kansas Fest this year. We had a Kaboom tournament with four people and four joysticks. And uh, fun was had by all. Woo! (laughs) While that was going on, a second group of us were playing the... uh, Aforementioned the Loadrunner board game. We talked about that uh, a oh, couple, yeah. couple months ago. It showed up on eBay. Yeah, and I was bemoaning the fact that I just missed that auction. I was willing to drop the $150 buy it now on it. Well, it turns out the rascals at the Retro Computing Roundtable, in fact, got together and, and bought that. They were the ones that won that auction. And, Jerks. Yeah, they donated it to the Kansas Fest committee, however. So uh, the Loadrunner board game will now show up every year at Kansas Fest from now on uh, for everyone to play. And it was just wonderful to see it. Uh, it's, oh, God. It, it's terrible, to be fair. If you're a board gamer, as I am, uh, if you're used to, to <laughs> Carcassonne and Tigris and Euphrates, uh, this thing is awful. But uh, I love that it exists, and it has a charm about it. And if you're an Apple II and LoadRunner Runner fan, as all of us are, uh, it, we, we had a great time playing it. We really did. Uh, so it's, it's surprisingly true to the feel of the video game. They definitely tried to, uh, to, to capture that. So uh, yeah, now the race is on to see who's going to make the first uh, Loadrunner board game video game. Uh, that, uh, that joke was made, so now someone has to actually do it. All right, moving right along. Uh, Mike, uh, is the Apple II Info Wiki no more? What's going on here?
2: Yeah, that looks like it's, uh, offline. Now there was a message over on, I believe it was the Google groups talking about how it had gone from the, um, you know, the sign that says it's under maintenance and it'll be back soon to now it's just a GoDaddy park page. So Hmm. that's unfortunate to see. However, it still does exist in some form up on the uh, archive. So if you're looking for information from that wiki, the wiki itself is gone, but you can find it on the
1: archive. Good stuff. Yeah, that's one of those sites that I don't think people necessarily appreciated, but it always came up in your Google searches for how do I plug a VGA monitor into my 2GS or whatever.
2: (laughs) Well, it was also great because in in addition to um, those sort of questions that you could get answered, uh, it also had a large collection of photos of a peripheral card and mm-hmm. what it was and the specs and all that so if you're looking yeah. at something and didn't know you could go to that site and compare and oh this is who made this and there's the disks for it and that sort of thing
1: yeah yeah for sure it was it definitely was one of those sites that had a lot of information that nobody else did so it uh, is a shame but it lives on in the Wayback machine so thanks to the Internet Archive. Uh, all right. Uh, I think our last item here is uh, from the fine folks at uh, sixty five 6502... oh two. Oh, what's that what is their what is their name? Workshop. Workshop. Thank you. Sixty five oh two. Workshop. Podcaster Fail, uh, <laughs> otherwise known as the team doing Nox Archaeist, which is the Ultima style uh, RPG that uh, they've been working on for a while now, and uh, they recently had a uh, graphics contest. We talked about that a couple months ago, where you could submit your tile artwork, and uh, so the winners for that are announced, and we'll link to uh, to that in the show notes where you can see all of the winners. And uh, yeah, some really uh, really cool stuff came out of that. Really really looking forward to this one. Indeed. So glad that there's two amazing RPGs in production for the Apple II. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the Apple II's forte really was the RPGs. You know, with the uh, ample memory and fast disk uh, access, uh, RPGs were really well suited to the to the platform. So, uh, so glad to see people playing to its strengths. All right. Well, that was a lot of news, but we got through it. And uh, I think we have one quick eBay item. Is that right, Mike?
2: Yeah, we do, and this is actually one from back in June that I told Evan that I would mention and then forgot to. So my apologies, Evan. I'm mentioning it now months after the fact and when it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, VCF back in June auctioned off a fully functional, uh, autographed Apple II, autographed by uh, Woz. Um, the thing sold after 49 bids for four thousand fifty six US dollars, and the money went to benefit uh, VCF. So there you go.
1: Very cool. All right, well, I think we're going to forego most of our uh, usual segments this month because we had so much news to catch up on, but we'll get mm. back to feedback and uh, other segments uh, next month as we get back into our regular schedule uh, once the Kansas Fest hangover wears off. And, uh, yeah, thank, uh, thank you, Mark, for taking the time to be on the show
0: here with us. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: All right, well, uh, until next month, uh, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you in September. Bye, buddy.
2: Using an Apple II is very easy. The only hard part is getting your kid away from it. You see, apples are the leading computers in schools, so even though you bought it to help you work at home, your kid will want to use it for his own homework. Of course, if all else fails, there's one last thing you can try. Get him an Apple of his own.
1: the open apple podcast subscribe to us in itunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog
0: if you like what you've heard today or even if you didn't your comments questions or ideas are always welcome send them to feedback at open-apple.net
1: well that was that was a waste of eight seconds